here we have these humble little microbes producing the same neurotransmitters as, as our in, incredible brain. So it's a little humbling, I think, from that perspective to know that a lot of bacteria can produce GABA, uh, can produce dopamine, can produce serotonin, acetylcholine. Every neurotransmitter can be produced by the bacteria. What are they doing with that? They're probably doing the same thing that our nerve cells are doing. They're probably communicating using these neurotransmitters. But are they also trying to communicate with us? And that's a big unknown, but it's not unlikely that they're doing exactly that. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Metagenics Institute podcast. My name is Nathan Rose. I'm the host. And with me today from Ohio is Scott Anderson. Welcome, Scott. Hi, how are you? I'm very good. So, Scott, you've joined us today to talk about the the gut-brain axis and how our microbes may influence our mood. Um, So before we dive in, so you're a bit of a career scientist and writer. Can you tell us about your background and how you got interested in the gut-brain axis? Certainly. I've been formulating prebiotics for a while here in uh, Ohio. Um, We were working for a long time with horses, uh, racehorses in particular, that turn out to have ulcers. And those ulcers are in their colon, although most uh, vets are not really aware of that. They're aware of gastric ulcers, but not really aware of colonic ulcers. Um, So that was something that we started working with. And when we did, we found out that those horses that had colonic ulcers also seemed to be acting depressed. We don't want to get too anthropomorphic about Mm -hmm. it, but it was something that that caught our eye. And so we started thinking, well, is there a connection between uh, colonic bacteria and mood Um, knowing that we were talking about horses. And I started to look around and I realized that John Cryan and Ted Dynan uh, at University College Cork in Ireland were actually doing research on exactly that. And so I called them up and talked to them. And after a a series of back and forths, we decided to do a book together on it because it, it just seemed fascinating to me that nobody had really had discussed much about this. And yet here I was seeing it in my day to day work. So uh, we got together in Ireland and made a deal to produce a book, and it's, it was called The Psychobiotic Revolution. That's, uh, that's the, the book that came out of it. Um, and uh, it was fantastic to work, to get a chance to work with uh, Ted Dynan and uh, John Cryan, who are absolutely fantastic researchers, and they are very, very busy people. Um, they, they have a, a large group of students that they're working with. They're producing papers on a regular basis. I find it difficult to keep up with them, mm-hmm. uh, but that was kind of my job here. And so uh, that's at that point, I started to immerse myself in the uh, gut microbiota and how it affects the, the brain. So that book was released in 2017. Uh, that's right, at the end of 2017. That's right. And how long were you researching that prior or to write the book? That, the book took about three years. Wow. So it's yeah. two, two to three years. So it started in early 2015. Um, and and uh, it, there's a, a lot to learn. Um, and it's one of those things where uh, when, you, when you look at the scope of it, you're talking about 
gastroenterology, you're talking about neurology, you're talking about immunology, yes. you're talking about microbiology. So all of these things had to get filled in. Um, I've been looking at a lot of those things independently over the years, but this brought it all together. Uh, it's kind of interesting to look at the people who are doing that research and, and, and how they observe and deal with the other people. So the gastroenterologists are at looking at, at uh, biology at microbiologists and mm -hmm. saying, what do you, why do you have anything to say about this? Yes. And the neurologists are like, why do either one of you have anything to say <laughs> about this? So they're, they're breaking their own barriers down. Uh, and all of them are learning a lot about all those other fields. It all fits together. And as, as we know, who all of us who study biology, we realize it's always complicated. Yes. Um, and obviously connected. So I think, uh, Ted Dynan, he's a psychiatrist originally wasn't that's correct he? yeah and that's what about correct. what about john crine is he coming from the gut up or the brain down or he's coming from the brain down so okay. he is also a, a neurologist and uh the head of neurology at uh, right. ucc and uh so he uh, uh that's his his forte i'm not sure exactly when he started looking at the microbes um but it's he's been doing it for a while since i think about 2012 or earlier he started doing some of the gut brain access stuff um that actually goes back to about 2003, where you start to see some of the first stirrings of interest in the gut-brain axis uh, using germ-free mice. And germ-free mice are, are intriguing. Nobody really knew that much about them. They are fantastic to do lots of experiments with because you've got an animal that isn't being affected by microbes. Um, they're a little tricky to, to deal with, but the first guy, uh, Nobuyuko Sudo, uh, started to do this research with the mice and realized that they had an unusual response to stress. And so he looked at that and he said, why would gut microbes, why would microbes in general uh, have any effect to, on, on uh, the behavior of these animals? Uh, he, uh, the more he dug into it, the more he realized it was actually even more complicated than that because he was able to restore the microbiota in mice, uh, but only up to about three months when, they, when the mice start to get um, uh, into their teenage years. Um, and after that, he couldn't repair the gut. The gut, you could, you could bring the gut back, but it didn't fix that behavior. So that behavior had a window of opportunity where right. you could fix it with microbes. Uh, so it was all quite interesting. And that's when we started to realize that microbes had an impact on behavior. Fascinating. So, yeah, obviously in natural medicine, the mantra is all diseases start in the gut um, and practitioners know empirically that if someone has a gut disorder, that can often affect their brain, their cognition, mood, etc. So, yeah, that was my, one of my questions was, yeah, we know this sort of empirically and intuitively perhaps, um, but yeah, science is starting to, to catch up. So that was the first inklings of a, a, a gut-brain connection. Um, are there other sort of lines of evidence about like fecal microbiome transplantation or human studies where there's like um, outbreaks, infection and mood disorders? What's the sort of epidemiological evidence or, or benchtop sort of evidence um, outside of uh, the... Yeah, the, there's a lot of interesting stuff that comes from the human side. When we started this book, most of the evidence was coming from these germ-free animals. And I turned to uh, John Cryan at one point and I said, are we going to be able to talk about people in this book or <laughs> will we, will the title be how to fix your depressed mouse? Um, so he, he assured me that there would be studies with humans before the book was published and he was correct. Uh, he knew that because he's uh, the editor of many of these journals and he knew sure. these studies yeah. were coming in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, it goes way back. I mean, it goes back to Hippocrates who understood and, and was one of the first to say that all disease starts in the gut. 
Hippocrates is aware of something called, he didn't call it this, but it was hepatic encephalopathy. All right. uh, it's, it's a liver disease, but it can have a manifestation on your personality. And when we figured this out in more recent times, we started saying, well, what can we do about that? We would give these people that were suffering from really large personality changes, people who would become, who were sweet as, as could be to begin with, and would become angry and, and uh, miserable. Uh, with this hepatic encephalopathy. It turns out that what's going on there is that the uh, inflammation has spread to their brain. And when we gave them antibiotics, it actually cures a lot of those people. So that was some of the first indications from a human level that indeed this is the case, that there is a connection uh, between the gut microbes and, and the, the brain via, in this case, the, the liver. Um, the other study, one of the other big studies that happened, and it was a pretty large breakthrough, came in the year 2000 in Walkerton, uh, Canada, where they had uh, an infection in the water supply. Right. Uh, it turned out it was a C. jejuni and, and E. coli uh, infection, and the town was not prepared for it. They were not really very well governed, uh, which was too bad because the government came out and said, it's not in the water, so don't worry about that. Of course, it was in the water and everybody kept drinking it and getting really sick. They had um, a, a lot of people died. Wow. Uh, it was a small town. Almost the entire town ended up in the hospital. Um, and that was the beginning of something that uh, uh, people at McMaster started to look at. McMaster University in Canada is not too far from where this was happening. And they had a couple of researchers who were doing stuff with these germ-free mice. They thought, what a fantastic opportunity to look at a natural infection. And they went there and they found out that a good number of those people ended up with what's called post-infectious IBS. Uh, irritable bowel syndrome. And those people, uh, pretty much 80% or so, also were depressed. So that's a comorbidity of, of IBS that we know about. Mm. Um, they thought that was fascinating and they looked at that for a long time and they followed these people through and those people had directly as a consequence of this infection ended up with depression. So there was another really good piece of evidence. Uh, since then, there have been quite a few clinical studies that are pointing more and more toward the, the reality of the gut-brain axis. Um, it's not been easy to be causal about it, but mm. we do have a lot of associational studies. Uh, but some of those studies, like this one with, at Walkerton, that, that's a causal thing. They, they could point to the uh, first appearance of this bacteria and the onset of depression. Fascinating. So let's move on now to these potential mechanisms. You mentioned the systemic inflammation uh, um, from the, the gut microbiome. What are some other uh, drivers or the mechan potential mechanisms of um, dysbiosis or gut dysfunction causing mood disturbances or cognitive dysfunction? Um, there, we, what we know now is that there are, are lots of ways that this can happen. And, and perhaps the, the best way to look at this is actually a consequence of inflammation. So the gut itself is designed to let nutrients in through the gut lining, but to keep the pathogens out. If you don't do that properly, if, if, if you get holes in the gut, this is the so-called leaky gut hypothesis. A lot of scientists don't like the term leaky mm. gut because the gut is permeable to begin with. It's supposed to be, uh, but it's actually a great term from my perspective because it explains it to a layperson really well. There are uh, there's permeability, and then there's the ability to actually get 
toxins and bacteria that can actually get through the lining of the gut and into the, the bloodstream. And at that point, the heart merrily pumps all of those things to every single mm -hmm. tissue in the body. So it's, you can't imagine a, a more ripe situation. Now, the, the immune system is designed to deal with that, and it'll chase down all of these bacteria. Uh, and most of the time it's able to get rid of it. But if you've got a leaky gut over a long period of time, after a while, you can start to get an overreaction to this. It's, it's so, sort of the same thing that's going on with some of these COVID reactions where you get an overactive immune system. Sure. The immune system is fantastic and complicated as can be, but it's also not subtle. And a lot of the times when you are chasing down a bacteria, you will kill the cell that it's in. You'll kill the cell that it's nearby. And so there's tissue death all over the place. And one of the things that, that we think is happening is that when you get chronic inflammation, that it can actually start to affect the blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier is there to keep uh, bacteria out. It's a, a very special part of the body. The brain can't really handle too much in, in the way of, of cellular depletion. You can hurt the liver and it'll regenerate. You can hurt the brain and it may regenerate, but in the process, you may have lost some memory. So we're starting to look at cognitive decline and in other parts of the brain, like the amygdala, the hippocampus, these things, de a depletion of cells in, that er in those areas can actually lead to depression and anxiety. Mm. And that's probably the body's way of telling you that something is in your brain that shouldn't be in your brain. Um, and that's one of those things where you got that, that whole feeling of depression and anxiety is like, I think I'll stay in bed today. I'm not, I'm not going to get out. I'm, I'm, yeah. I've had it. And that may be a reasonable thing to do if you have an infection. You might want to keep uh, reinfecting yourself. You might want to keep from infecting others. So these are things that, that billions of years of evolution have honed this reaction. Um, so we think that that is the source of a lot of it. And in fact, that may be the source of a lot of just uh, disease in general, that chronic inflammation is at the root of heart disease. It's at the root of diabetes and, and obesity, um, at the root of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. So we, we see it everywhere we look. We start to see that some of these things, these diseases, are actually seem to be uh, diseases of the immune system in, that, in the sense that that tissues are getting inflamed and barriers are being broken through and that the immune cells are coming in and cleaning things up with a lot of collateral damage. Um, just with the inflammation, uh, so obviously the leaky gut, there's um, potential biomarkers looked at in the research, but there's a, a fair bit of contention from my understanding looking at the research on things like um, zonulin and the lactulose mannitol test. What's your sense? Do you have any sort of views on um, if there's any clinical utility yet in some of these markers looking at uh, hyperpermeability? We look at markers like that all the time. Uh, in, our, in our business, we're looking at C-reactive protein. We're looking at zonulin. We're looking at those things that indicate that you have a leaky gut. And those are things that are oftentimes highly correlated with diseases. So that's where we start to see that, yeah, th these things could really have an impact um, and that these markers are actually good markers for determining disease. Um, so th I think that they're very important. And okay. I think that, that we need more of them. And I'd love to see more rapid tests along those lines rather than some of the tests right now that are a little bit expensive in terms of getting it yeah, done. Yeah. We would love to be doing a lot more of that kind of testing. Yeah, sure. And yeah, so, so to inflammation, what are some of the key biomarkers? Do you think they're quite um, validated, like CRP, any others? 
Um, we're mostly the C-reactive protein is one of the best that we're looking at, but we also look at cortisol levels. And so those waking cortisol levels are also a good indication of anxiety in your life yeah. and, and dealing with stress. So those are some of them. We are, we are always looking at fecal microbiota, but right now that's still a very tricky thing to mm. try and figure out. Mm, you excellent. can look at it and you can see, okay, here's the, the ratio of firmicutes to bacteroidetes. That's supposed to mean something, but it's really all over the map. You see lots of research that says, oh, uh, a, a, a big ratio is good. And others that say, no, a low ratio is good. So at this point, I think it's fair to say that we don't know exactly what the, the issues are in terms of overall large, at least from the, the genus level. You, if you get down to lower levels to species and then down to subspecies and to strains, then you do start to see some really good correlations um, with, with uh, specific bacteria and quality of life and mood. And those are things that, that we're looking at more and more. And those, some of those things are coming from really big human studies. So mm. the data looks really good on these. Um, I, I love those studies. There was a good one coming from the, the northern parts of Europe where they keep good records, uh, mm. like in places like Belgium and That's Norway right. and stuff where they have excellent records and they're not afraid to put all their data out there. So. <laughs> Uh, it's it's really it's a, a wonderful place to look for some of this uh, information, and they're finding specific bacteria that are correlated to quality of life. Interesting. And um, what are some of those um, species or genus? Uh, Dialister was one of the biggest ones, and uh, Coprococcus was another one. Mm, so wow. those were the two that they found that had a direct correlation. And finding specific bacteria like that is really important, because otherwise, if you're just looking at overall ratios of specific yeah. genre, it's just not, that's not, does not seem to be as helpful. Interesting. Um, just back to the inflammation, uh, lipopolysaccharide LPS is one of the, the fragments that can enter the system, particularly with um, gut hyperpermeability. Uh, are there any clinical or any, any available tests to, to look at sort of um, endotoxemia in the system? Yeah, you can track you can track LPS, and that's one of those things that we can see pretty well. Uh, LPS is uh, stunning in terms of its ability to cause uh, a reaction. Mm -hmm. you, you can give LPS straight to a person, and they will within minutes they will start uh, showing signs of anxiety. Um, it's a very strong reaction. Um, so those are one of the things that we're looking at. And, and if you look at what's going on, what we think is going on with a lot of this is that you've got this sort of uh, good guy, bad guy thing. It turns out that there are a lot of bacteria in your gut that can produce LPS. Um, but most of them are being offset by other bacteria, gram positive bacteria that don't have the LPS part of that, yes. uh, of their membrane. And that may be one of the things that's happening in terms of tamping down the immune reaction. So what we're seeing is that specific bacteria actually produce things that, in particular, butyrate is one of the big ones, uh, the butyric acid that, that calms down the immune system. It actually has an epigenetic effect on T cells and helps them to produce IL-1 and other inflammation-lowering interleukins. And so those are really intriguing things to be looking at. And that's one of the ways that we think is that you can fight against the LPS infections and the gram negatives that are causing some problems. And not all of them cause problems. It's, it's, it's typically what happens is that 
they get over exuberant. Um, they can they can live fairly nicely uh, and and harmoniously, uh, but when the balances get a little bit off, when the diversity levels fall, that's when some of these bullies, some of these species become bullies, and they start to take over to an extent that is hard for your body to then balance it all out. Fascinating. Um, and just back to the sorry the butyrate that affects methylation, doesn't it? it inhibits histones I yes think. yeah it has an epigenetic effect on t-cells and we also think on bdnf brain-derived neurotrophic wow. factor okay yeah so it so it it directly can get and it can get through all those tissues it can go right through uh the gut lining and can get into the bloodstream and it can get past the blood brain barrier oh, okay so so yeah so it can actually have a very direct impact uh, on the brain oh, um, and yeah so butyrate is is a fantastic uh it's a it's a vector that we need to be looking at more yeah. It's the favored food of the enterocytes, the cells lining the gut. Yes. So it's one of those things that has benefits all the way through the system, uh, starting with the gut, incre increasing the uh, proper permeability of the gut, and decreasing the, uh, the, the, the LPS and the other toxins that get through, and also helping in the brain directly and indirectly with epigenetic effects. Oh, so it's, yeah, it, it really does. It's a powerful uh, uh, molecule. Yeah, yeah. Just I wasn't sure how far yeah the butyrate sort of uh, essentially infiltrated into the body. I was unsure if it worked mo um, mostly locally on the epithelial cells, but it sounds like it's having a broad systemic effect. Yeah, it's big. Yeah. So another area I want to I'm curious on is how the if potentially the gut and the microbiome communicates the brain via directly via the nervous system, such as the, the vagal nerve. There's been studies like with vagotomies and changes in mood and cognition. Can you describe the, the connection there and how strong it is? Yeah, it's, th there are several ways that the gut uh, affects the brain. Um, it's not clear exactly which ones are the most important, but the vagus nerve seems to be one of the more important avenues for crosstalk. Um, and it's a two-way conversation. The brain can talk to the stomach or mm -hmm. the, to the gut uh, through the vagus and vice versa. Um, the interesting things that, that we see is that a lot of the benefit, a lot of the psychobiotic benefit of bacteria disappears when you do a vagotomy. This is obviously being done in mice, um, not, not humans. However, there was a time in Sweden when people were being treated with vagotomies to help them deal with ulcers. Uh, you have to be pretty desperate to do that because it's it's not minor surgery, but it, it's it's something that, that that people were doing. Those people, it turned out later, years later, had a far lower rate of Parkinson's disease. So all wow. of a sudden, we started thinking, oh, this is interesting. So not just in terms of mood, but in terms of these some of these really nasty uh, and and intransigent diseases that they start in the gut. And it looks like they start by creating, and nobody's sure about the exact uh, etiology of this, but it starts in the gut with things called Lewy bodies. And Lewy bodies are these little, little groups of tangled up proteins that move their way up through the vagus nerve. It can take 10 years. And it starts in the gut with constipation, but those patients years later start to have Parkinson's symptoms. And so that's one of the things that we think is going on in terms of, of the vagus nerve and how it communicates some of these diseases. How it actually communicates uh, the idea of uh, the stress is going on and then the stress getting up to the brain causing anxiety and depression, that's less clear. Right. But it is, it is clear from these vagotomies that something is happening there. Interesting. 
All right. I want to move on to, you mentioned Parkinson's there. There's a few conditions. Um, I see you've been even recently overnight and um, the past few days been tweeting out some um, reviews on. Um, so this is the, the tricky area. This is cause or consequence, which comes first. Um, so I want to look at a couple conditions. Firstly, depression or mood disorders. Uh, so a couple past this question is there, what's the, the research showing in terms of a microbial uh, composition um, compared to these these folk and healthy controls and or the second component is it the metabolites um, are there altered metabolites coming from the microbiome in these patients or is it a consequence of the depression and they're you know um, got low mood they've got low motivation they may be eating poor foods and not moving and then they get dysbiosis so <laughs> How do we right, start right. to tease all this out? <laughs> I would be shocked if it wasn't two ways because this yes. is biology here. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but we don't know exactly. Uh, however, there's some really fascinating um, hints about where things are going. And I think that one of the, the things that makes most sense to me, that's most compelling to me, are these fecal transplant mm. uh, experiments. Because what they're doing there is they are giving fecal transplants from humans to mice. So they will give a, a mouse a transplant from a depressed human being, and it will make the mouse act depressed. Now, a depressed mouse is something that you can have arguments with. Um, <laughs> you can't look at their face and see that they're that they're frowning, uh, but they do have different. Uh, very uh, similar reactions to this kind of, of uh, transplant. And it's interesting to look at because that proves, that is definitely showing causality. When you give a transplant to the animal and it changes their behavior, that's causal. Um, so that's, we're no longer looking there at just simple correlations. Um, and then when you look at how it's cross species, that's even more intriguing. So the same bacteria that cause depression in humans is, is apparently causing depression in the mice as well. So there's something going on there that's common between humans and mice that is a little bit unexpected, but it mm -hmm. does help to show, it does help to build a case for causality. It doesn't show causality in humans, but it's a good enough indicator that we can say, yeah, there's something that's causal about this, maybe not in humans, but definitely in mice and definitely going from humans to mice, it builds a case. Yes. So it's one, it's one of those things that, that looks good. In terms of what's happening, in terms of the metabolites, uh, there's a lot of uh, suppositions going on about that. Butyrate, as we talked about, is one of the most important ones, but there are other short-chain fatty acids, acetate and propionate are a couple of the others. Um, those are all being produced by bacteria, but bacteria also produce amazingly neurotransmitters. Mm. So that's something that if you, if you think of the brain as the ultimate, uh, uh, uh apotheosis of humankind or uh, of all of nature, the brain mm -hmm. is such a great thing. And yet here we have these humble little microbes producing the same neurotransmitters as, as our an incredible brain. So it's a little humbling, I think, from that perspective to know that a lot of bacteria can produce GABA, uh, can produce dopamine, can produce serotonin, acetylcholine. Every neurotransmitter can be produced by the bacteria. What are they doing with that? They're probably doing the same thing that our nerve cells are doing. They're probably communicating using these neurotransmitters. 
but are they also trying to communicate with us? And that's a big unknown, but it's not unlikely that they're doing exactly that. We have now found that there are nerve cells that are that actually end up inside, that, that are exposed to the lumen inside of the gut and can actually pick up what's going on in there. So if serotonin is being produced by bacteria, those nerves might pick it up and send it up through the via the vagus right. up to the brain. Um, at that point, what you're looking at is the connection between the hypothalamus and the pituitary, which then uh, brings uh, uh, hormones down to the adrenal glands. Right. And that's where you start to get the cortisol and you get these other anxiety producing uh, yeah. chemicals. So, so there's this, all of this starts to make some sense. It, it certainly is a compelling story. Again, we need a lot more research, clinical research in humans to show the actual specific causality, but the story is looking very good from that point of view. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another one that you tweeted recently, a nice little review, something you've been following is um, autism, another really tricky one. Um, so obviously children with ASD often maybe up to 80%, um, but not all patients have gut dysfunction. Again, they've got often an altered microbiome, but again, is that because they often are very picky and only you know three or four food groups? Uh, there was a recent fecal microbiotransplantation study that showed some benefit that seems to hold and last. So it's and very promising, um, but I'm still, uh, yeah, I feel maybe that's a subset of autism that may benefit or, um, yeah, I don't know, there's still a piece missing, I feel, or probably many pieces missing to, to be conclusive that autism is not caused, but certainly <laughs> contributed or driven by gut dysfunction. So what's your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a spectrum, you know, the, it's, it's a big spectrum. And I've dealt with autistic children who were not the kind that we tend to think of today. The, we don't use the word Asperger's anymore, but there are these children who are affected, but not so badly. Mm. Um, and some of them have, as a consequence of losing parts of their, their socializing, have either picked up extra intelligence, not, but this is something that, that, it is such a spectrum and it's such a wide spectrum. It's in my mind, it's almost impossible to think of this as all the same disease mm. because you see these people with repetitive behaviors. You see these people who are nonverbal. Some of those that's called autism. And then you see these other people who are just genuinely brilliant, wonderful people who may have, may not be able to catch your eye all that well, but that's that it's some, sometimes you don't even really know that they've yeah. got autism. Absolutely. So, and some of these people are brilliant researchers. So there's just this huge spectrum. I don't believe that it's caused by gut bacteria, but what the research is showing is that they are suffering. Some of these people, some of these kids who have outbursts, who get very angry and who are, are uh, having fits and, and um, just being hard to control. If you give some of those kids prebiotics or probiotics, you can help them. If you change their diet, which is very difficult for a lot of them, because as you mentioned, a lot of them are very picky eaters. But again, it's hard to make generalizations. So the, the, the upshot of all of this is that if you have a child or an adult who is sometimes, and not, you know, not always this way, but sometimes has these uh, uh, angry moments, those people, those kids seem to be the ones that can be affected most by some of these prebiotic probiotic treatments. And so that's a really wonderful thing. If you can improve their scores, their autism scores, that's terrific. It's the, for the parents involved, it is a godsend. Mm. So it's not a cure by any means, but it's something that seems to have utility and, and it's helpful. 
you, everybody who is involved with this will take it. Yeah. And your interpretation of the FMT study, the, the results and the, the clinical takeaway? Well, the same sort of thing is going on there. I mean, FMT, what, the, the difference between FMT and, say, prebiotics and probiotics is that prebiotics and probiotics don't really stick. Mm. Uh, you have to take them every day. Um, because in particular, probiotics are, generally speaking, are travelers. They're, they're passing through. And they may do, they do good things on their way through. They produce butyrate. They produce some of these other short chain fatty acids, but they're unlikely to take root there because a lot of them, it's like you're eating yogurt or something. Is your gut like a good place to ferment yogurt? Not exactly. It's not the same sort of thing. And so although some of them will stick around and find a home, most of them are just on their way through. Uh, fecal transplants, on the other hand, seem to stick around for a while. We're not sure exactly how long, but we've seen people who've had fecal transplants where that microbiota is still intact years later, wow. six years, wow. six years, I think is the, is the top. So there's something where you can say, yeah, absolutely. If you can do that, that may be great, but you have to think about this now because it used to be all we did was we looked at the fecal transplant, the, the fecal matter itself, and we made sure there weren't any germs in it. We made, not germs, but made sure that there weren't any pathogens. pathogens yes. Um, so, but now it looks like we have to look at other things as well. You want to know if that person was a well-balanced person. If that person was depressed, you might get depression from that fecal transplant. So those are some of the things. Now we're upping the ante on what has to be done with some of these, these uh, materials before they're, they're used for a transplant. In fascinating area. And finally, with the conditions, uh, Alzheimer's disease or even just cognitive function and, and healthy aging, uh, there's been a lot of activity recently on the research between the microbiome and, and cognition. Can you give us a bit of a, a summary of, of where the, the research is at? Yes, similar to uh, uh, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's seems to start in the gut as well. Not all of it probably, but at least some kinds of Alzheimer's may start in the gut. And what's going on in the gut is interesting. There are some proteins called... Uh, uh, antimicrobial peptides. They're produced by cells in the gut. And they are amazing because they seem to be able to change their conformation and to form nets to hook up it into a large net that can trap bacteria and then help them to exit the system. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fascinating. And, but it kind of sounds like something else that we've talked about in terms of mm -hmm. not, not here, but, but that scientists talk about something called prions, which are, uh, proteins that can change their conformation. And when they do, they have different ways of interconnecting. What we see when you look at the brain, you see these amyloid uh, and, and tau tangles. Uh, the amyloid buildup is very much, very similar to the same uh, antimicrobial peptides in the gut. It's possible that some of these prions that, that cause things like Jakob Kreutzfeld and mad cow disease, it's possible that these, this is not such an unusual thing in the body and that these kinds of misfolded or maybe not misfolded, but just differently folded proteins are a big part of the immune system. So it's possible when you see these things in the brain, when you see amyloid buildup in the brain, people assume, oh, that's causing some, that's causing the Alzheimer's. The last 400 Alzheimer's drugs have been designed to get rid of them, mm -hmm. but it hasn't worked. Not one of them has worked. And so, and, and not only that, but if you look at the brains of Alzheimer's people, not all of them have the amyloid buildup. And if you look at the people who don't have it, some of them do have the amyloid buildup. So while we've been looking at the brain and considering that these amyloids are like the arsonists of the brain, and maybe the firemen, 
they may be there to put out the fire and getting rid of them is a, is a fool's errand. So it's possible that these things move up amyloid uh, from the gut moves up through the vagus or maybe in other mechanisms and gets to the brain. And at that point, you've got something that is really what you're looking at is a leaky brain where uh, the immune system has gotten in and they're deploying these amyloids to actually mm. trap and, and, and confine uh, bacteria. There's the, another study that was fascinating to me that, um, and, and this is something that, that I think we might get back to, uh, the oral microbiome is yeah. there as well. And they were looking at gingivitis. Uh, gingivalis porphyromonas is a very common uh, bacterium in the mouth. It's what causes gum disease. And they found it in 99% of the people, uh, uh, of the brains of people who had Alzheimer's and not in the people who didn't. Mm. And so there's very compelling evidence that, that some of these bacteria is coming from the mouth, getting right into the brain and causing some of these issues. So there's a lot more that this story is building that, that Alzheimer's may be again, another kind of inflammation um, that, that's part of, and part of the problem is because the immune system is a little overeager and, and sh really should not be killing nerve cells, but that doesn't, they don't know what else to do. Fascinating. All right. Um, yeah. So as you mentioned, the oral microbiome, I might <laughs> go up from the, a lot of the research is often centered around the colonic microbiome. I think partly because it's probably easy to access, but also the, there's a greater density of population down there in diversity. Right. Um, but there have, have been hints recently about the small intestine, we'll get to the oral microbiome. Um, Mark, Dr. Mark Pimentel, who's an expert in um, SIBO, he was hinting at the start of the year that there's going to be some big announcements and breakthroughs around the connection between the small intestinal microbiome and, and disease. And then um, COVID came along and I think he's pivoted and he's trying to <laughs> help out there and create some therapies and remedies. So I've been waiting with bated breath for a while. Um, so do you, what's, have you looked into the small intestine? It seems like it's maybe neglected in terms of its role in systemic health and wellbeing and particularly maybe mental health. We did a lot of studies with horses. So this, I'm going to give you the caveat that this is in equines more than in humans. Sure. But when we did, we, we looked at the entire intestinal tract of horses. Um, and what we found is that the small intestines really are not huge hotbeds of bacterial activity. And as you noted, there's a uh, much higher density in the colon than the colon is, is the natural spot for all of these bacteria. That doesn't mean that some of that doesn't leak out uh, into the into the small intestines and like as you mentioned SIBO is one of those one of those possibilities and Crohn's disease and and a lot of these things celiac may be centered in the small intestines not the large intestine and so these are things to be looking at and uh, there are some interesting studies that showed that some people who were taking probiotics were actually getting a little bit of this SIBO going on and that they were getting foggy brains Again, it's a gut-brain axis, uh, axis here that's happening, but it's a negative one. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's, it's something to look at. It's definitely there. It seems to be of less import, but it's certainly not uh, none. There's certainly you know, not a zero mm -hmm. import to what's going on down there. Um, so yeah, that is something that we're looking at. The stomach as well. The duodenum is another place. Um, the esophagus. Uh, everywhere from, from the mouth all the way through to the anus, 
is coated with bacteria. It's just a, a matter of how much is there. And yeah. it's a matter of yeah. whether, whether pathogens have managed to take over. And probably we're coated from beginning to end with biofilms. So some of these things that get set up, you can understand because it's a biofilm, are gonna be really tough to dislodge. And that's one of the issues that we're finding is that once you've got your bacteria made up in your gut, it's a, it, that, that neighborhood is tough. And, it, and any, anything else that comes in to try and disrupt it is going to be uh, rudely ejected from the neighborhood. <laughs> That's why uh, the fecal transplants are so important is because what they do there is they try and kill everything that's in your, in your gut. They, they don't, but they try. And then when you put the whole, uh, whole new microbiota inside, that can actually take root. That can, that's enough of everybody working together in a new microbiome to, to replace the old one and to get rid of the biofilms and to start over a new, probably a new set of biofilms. Now, biofilms may or may not be always bad. Um, and, and I think that we're still, this is, this is really new kind of research that's going on. Typically, we consider them to be bad. They're, that's what's behind tartar in the mouth and things like that. That's where we are, are most uh, familiar with biofilms. Uh, but throughout the gut, it might be that your biofilms uh, lining the entire system may be a part of healthy, uh, a healthy gut. Yeah, true. I haven't thought of it in that, that context. Um, and just finally, briefly, the oral microbiome, obviously, Pagin Duvalis is linked to uh, Alzheimer's and I think um, rheumatoid arthritis. Are there any mm -hmm. other microbes or anything that you've come across that's change your maybe um, practices or views or uh, on the importance of the oral microbiome? The oral microbiome? Um, I think that, that when you look at some of the practices that dentists have in place, when they are going to do an operation on you, they're going to give you antibiotics in general because they're looking to protect your heart. So that's another mm. connection between the, the microbiome and, and uh, your, your bodily systems. That's the same thing, though. What's going on there is inflammation. And whenever you're talking about inflammation, if you carry it on for long enough, and if it's sustained for, you know, at some degree of, of heat, um, then that is going to start to break through the, gut, the blood brain barrier. And that's when you're going to start to get some issues. So I would not be surprised besides P. gingivalis that we find other bacteria that are, that are involved. Um, all I know is that I'm making sure to brush my teeth very well, <laughs> um, <laughs> but not so hard that you, break through and cause it to bleed because that's how you're going to get the bacteria into your bloodstream. So it's a tricky thing to, to, to work on. Um, as you get older, these things become trickier. Uh, and it's because your immune system actually starts to senesce a little bit and, and mm. gets old itself. Uh, also your blood brain barrier starts to get a little leakier and your gut gets to be a little leakier. So all of these things are bad harbingers for getting uh, old. Uh, it looks like though that some of this can be fixed. Um, at least we can help to produce uh, more bacteria in our gut that are the good bacteria, for instance, bifidobacteria. Um, and those are the ones that are actually, bifidobacteria does not directly produce butyrate, but it produces other substances that in turn cause the butyrate produces like clostridia, mm -hmm. which is not always a bad guy. They'll produce butyrate. And so it's all, it's the, 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 action of all of these things is, is a little tricky. None of this stuff is straightforward, uh, but things do ping off of each other and have, create a cascade where the ultimate end product, if you're doing it right, is the butyrate that will help heal your gut and start to heal all the rest of your systems. 
Okay, um, so let's move on now. Thank you to your um, title of your book, Psychobiotics: The Idea That Administration of Perhaps um, Probiotics Can Have a, a Health Benefit on Mind and Cognition. So this is a, a again an emerging area. Uh, it's quite complicated. Um, so yeah, I want to just start off like with what maybe based off is it inflammation is it vagus nerve is it um yeah immune activation is it leaky gut how do we start thinking about what a probiotic um which probiotic may be of benefit or because when i look at the research it, it seems quite random which ones they're testing and I'm, I, I can't always work out the rationale of why they've chosen that strain or species so um does that sort of help give context about the confusion and can you sort of elaborate on that <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of confusion, and there will continue to be confusion for a while. Um, the, the ones that we can look to right now that have the greatest utility and that actually seem to have good uh, studies is lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. And if those sound familiar, that's because those are the starring uh, actors in yogurt. Mm. Um, that's why some of these things are being studied, not because they are ne necessarily the best bacteria to be there, but because it's a part of something that we've known for, for years. We know that yogurt is safe, and so it's easy to look at those bacteria. Um, there are others. If you start to look at other uh, concoctions, uh, kefir, uh, kombucha, uh, krauts, all these things have different bacteria. Um, they will find their moment in the sun too. But right now, lactobacillus and bifidobacteria are two of the top ones that are getting research because they are there and because there are lots of manufacturers who would like to show that they work. So Yakult is a Japanese manufacturer of a kind of a yogurt and a drink. And they have financed a lot of this research. Right. So a lot of it is, is because of that. So th th it's interesting to look at that. It's fascinating if you want to see what is there, but it's not clear yet. And if you look at the species and the strains that are going on, if you look at the, the name of a strain, for instance, the Lactobacillus rhamnosus R0011, that is a bacterium that's produced by a company that has given it those names, that mm. last part, the R0011, that is from a company. That is their designation for the strain that they have either discovered or actually sometimes created. And so, what you're looking at is, is sometimes being pushed forward for corporate purposes um, and, and corporate interests are involved. That's not a bad thing, exactly. but it's, it's, and in fact, if, if, if what they're doing works, it's a fantastic thing because they're in a position now to actually create these strains and then to sell them. Um, and people are, are really looking forward to some of these solutions. Uh, but at the same time, it should all it should give us just a little bit of of uh, skepticism, um, and I think that that's the appropriate angle to have about most of this research right now. It's a little skeptical about it because we're not positive about what is the best bacterium to offer to people, what is the best uh, pre probiotic. Uh, one of the things that I recommend in our book is that we change our diet. I think that that's less problematic than taking probiotics. And probiotics, I have a problem with probiotics. Um, and that is because, and it's largely here in the United States where we have decided through the DSHEA Act of 1998 or something that uh, pretty much anything goes. The FDA doesn't mm -hmm. have that much of a, of a oversight unless people start dying. If people start dying, they'll come in and they'll say, what did you put in your capsules? 
and they'll say, oh, we're using this or that. And they'll say, well, you're hurting people, stop it. Um, so it's, it's kind of a wild, wild west, which is simultaneously good and bad. It's good because people are now able to try a lot of things. Um, if you, if the FDA comes down on them the same way that they come down on drugs, it could cost a billion dollars to approve a single probiotic. And so you could see that that research would dry up pretty quickly. Mm. Uh, right. So, so you've got the good part of lots of possibilities and the bad part of lots of possibilities and some of them may be bad. So it's, it's not something that I find easy to recommend. And in our book, we go through all of the probiotics that are out there and, and, and tear them down and find out which ones have actually had randomized controlled testing done. And those are the ones that we can say, yeah, these, these actually seem to have what, what is on the, the label corresponds to what's in the pill. Even that level is tricky for some probiotics. Um, and then also that it's a, a efficacious. And so those are two things that you really want to have kind of straightened out. Um, so that's kind of where we are with probiotics. We're, what we recommend is that certain foods, uh, it, it turns out you can wash your vegetables all that you want, and you will not get rid of a lot of the bacteria that lives right. inside of the plant. And so you're getting probiotics with everything that you eat, but you're also, and this is key, you're getting prebiotics, which is the food for the bacteria. It is indigestible sugars, oligosaccharides, that our enzymes cannot break down but that bacterial enzymes can. Bacteria have like 200 enzymes or probably thousands, but 200 that we know of that are specifically designed to attack different kinds of sugars. And so these are complex sugars, they're chains of sugars, they're not just disaccharides or monosaccharides. They're oligosaccharides that are complex enough that we can't digest them, they're food for the bacteria and the bacteria convert them into things like butyrate. And so this is the way, this is another way to go at it. Now, uh, prebiotics are in the same category as probiotics. They're still supplements and they're still under this kind of vague oversight. Um, so, but that's a lot easier to, to make a prebiotic. Um, you're not growing anything. There's no living thing in it. Uh, the, the shelf life is long mm. um, and they're easy to get. The, a lot of these uh, prebiotics are simply things like chicory root. So you take, which is, is endive, uh, the, the root of an endive plant. So these things are, are widely available. You can get it through uh, artichokes, asparagus, uh, uh, beets, uh, legumes, uh, all sorts of things have it. Um, and those are things that obviously are fine. These are great foods and they have no downside. Um, except on some of them, if you've never done this kind of thing before, as you know, with beans and other things, there yeah. may be gas. Yes. yes. Um, so, and as the, if you go to Mexico and you ask them, how do they deal with the gas? They say you eat more beans. Um, and, and that's actually what you have to do. If you do it for a long enough period of time, you will develop a, a, a symbiotic situation in your gut where everybody is happy with what other people are, other bacteria are producing and down there. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Um, I'll just circle back to the the probiotics because yes, I agree. Certainly, I'm um, in, in the US. The FDA, it seems, yeah, quite as you mentioned, a wild west. I think in Australia, in, in some ways, it, in New Zealand, it's um, the polar opposite with our regulatory system, um, which again has its pros and cons as well. Um, right. And just to circle back as well, there obviously has been positive trials with all these, with some of these um, psychobiotics. So just to, I suppose, just explore that there. Um, some have been mixed, some have been positive, but probably my view is that they're, they're few in number just at the moment. Would that be 
accurate? Yes. Uh, we don't see nearly enough clinical trials. It's very difficult to do clinical trials with humans and diet, uh, let alone uh, some of these supplements. Yeah. Um, you can't really, you, you, you almost need to put them in jail. And in fact, I would propose that we do <laughs> some studies with people in jail. There's a captive audience for you. You can make sure that they're eating what you want them to be eating. They're not going to lie about uh, what they're eating because they're being observed. So I, I, I don't, I know there's ethical issues with that. I'm not actually serious about it, except if somebody can figure out how to get past the ethical aspects of it. Uh, because we need to have these trials. They're very difficult to do. They're extremely mm. expensive. You need a large number of people who are not going to lie to you about what they've been eating, who are not going to say, oh, I only had one drink last night. Um, it's like COVID time. You had more than one drink. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of, it's one of those things. It's like people, some of these studies are done with say, what did you eat last week? It's like, really? I don't remember breakfast at this mm, point. You know, mm. it's like, um, I'm supposed to remember what I ate last week and somehow be, uh, you know, very detailed about it. Those are tricky studies and, and we need much better answers to how to get that done. And with that, um, it's a good point about, say a person participated in a, pro, a probiotic trial, their diet could change, um, which could influence the result. My other question was on whether in the future we'll know if there, there could be responders or non-responders of a probiotic or whatever therapy based on their, their sort of residual microbiome. Do you think that makes an influence if um, you've got a different microbiome to someone else and you take a, a probiotic or any, any substance really? I think it makes a huge difference. And, and some of the studies that I'm showing are that that may be the most important aspect of taking a pre or probiotic. Are you a male or a female? Those uh, males are supposed to get 35 grams per day of fiber. Females only need 28. That's a, that's a, a fairly reasonable distance between those two numbers. And mm. it's not just based upon the average weights. It's different. There's a problem. There's some, something different going on. And, and if, it, if you see it, it's not just based upon the weight. The, the men and women differ by maybe 20% in weight, but we're talking like closer to 30, 40% difference in terms of other things that they need uh, to be coming up to snuff in terms of, say, prebiotics or probiotics. Why? Part of that could be hormones. Um, clearly that's one of the major differences between men and women is that there are hormones that women have and that men have that are different and they seem to have an impact on the gut microbiome. So there's something that's some, a real simple thing to look at. But another thing is, do you already have IBS? If you do, you can take probiotics and you can have it get, get worse. It can really exacerbate the condition because you might get a, an overgrowth of bacteria from the probiotic. And if you've got a leaky gut, that can, it doesn't matter whether a bacterium is good in your gut or not. If it's in your bloodstream, it's not good. Mm. And so, so these are things that if you have a leaky gut, you should be healing that first before you take probiotics and prebiotics. And, and there are ways that that can be done as well. So I think that, that, personalized medicine, personalized uh, uh, approaches to everybody, are, that's going to be a huge uh, aspect of the future of probiotics and prebiotics. Absolutely, yeah, I agree. All right, I just wanted to cover off um, some potential factors that can contribute to the microbiome. Again, I saw a few of your tweets recently. There was one on like sleep apnea. Um, so what are the, some of the other big picture elements outside of diet and fiber that has been linked to um, microbiome composition, which then could affect systemic health. 
That's you said it right there. Systemic health. I think that we're going to find that um, almost all of the major diseases are going to be found to be linked to gut microbiome. Uh, you're going to find a disease, uh, you're going to find based upon a, we, we've kind of disabused ourselves of the idea of uh, enterotypes. That, that was an idea sure. that we all had these specific kinds of gut bacteria. And it turns out it's way more complicated than that. But there are different things that we can look at and we can correlate some of those changes in particular things like diversity. Alpha diversity, beta diversity, these are terms that, that refer to how evenly spread out and how many uh, bacteria you have in your gut. Um, as there are fewer and fewer of them, as the diversity goes down, that seems to be highly correlated to all sorts of diseases. So we're looking at, at uh, heart disease, we're looking at things that don't seem like they would be gut related at all, mm. but they apparently are. So we're seeing a lot of this correlation going on. It's still correlational at this point. Um, like you say, even with the gut brain, it could be, and we, and we actually know some of this, is that stress can cause things to happen in your brain that can then reflect back on your gut microbes. Um, and, and some of the things that we do to ourselves, staying up late, binge watching Netflix or something, that can change you too because you have this uh, circadian cycle. Your gut microbes have a circadian cycle too. If those are not aligned with each other, you can get all sorts of problematic behaviors. So sleep patterns, uh, apnea, all of these things are ultimately, are, we're going to find are highly correlated to things going on in the gut. Exactly what is going on in the gut, exactly how that, that is uh, affecting us, it's not quite clear yet. Pathogens will certainly be a part of it, and certain bacteria that are, that are well known to improve your mood, that's going to be a part of it. And then the overall diversity would be another aspect of it. And, but they're going to affect every part of your health. And, and I, I look at this from a point of view of rheumatoid arthritis, uh, lots of things that are diseases of the elderly, cognition problems, memory problems. These are things that, as you get older, definitely get worse. And the diseases of aging, and we've got a huge baby boomer population that is now at this, at this point where mm -hmm. they're going to start losing it if they're not taking care of their gut. And a lot of them are not because they were brought up with bad uh, dietary advice. So we're looking at an educational problem here as well. Absolutely. Okay, I think we've covered most areas. Um, so I suppose uh, I'm curious now on what excites you, where, where, where are you now turning your attention? Where, yeah, what's the future? What are, you, what are you sort of hoping for, expecting? There are a lot of things that are happening that are, that are very exciting to me. Um, the fecal transplants have shown themselves to be of great utility. Uh, they started using them with people who had C. diff infections. So if you're in a hospital, you get a round of antibiotics. C. diff is the last man standing because it can insist itself. It can form these little capsules that are impervious to the antibiotics. So everything else is dead. They are now fine. They, they can take over the whole show. You never want to have a single species or just a handful of species mm. down there because they will ravage the joint. It's just not good. So the fecal transplants are showing that we can actually fix all of these things. It's a high level of success, 95% or so yeah, uh, success rate, which is un amazing. I mean, you find very few drugs in the world that have that kind of success rate. So, so this is an amazing thing to look at. Uh, as I mentioned, you might want to be checking out the mental attitude of your donor, um, as well as maybe if they're overweight or underweight, 
uh, those are things that could be transferred along with the microbiota. So these are things we need to be looking at. Um, a lot of people look at the fecal transplants and just say, ick, I don't want to have anything to do with this. <laughs> I don't blame them. It's a little, it's, it's, uh, but if you've got a C. diff infection, you will take it right away. You will take anything. It is the most miserable thing. You're just basically dying of diarrhea. It is not fun. So they, these people will take it. What's the future? Finding out exactly what is in those, that, those transplants, finding mm -hmm. out the exact composition. If we can figure out some subset that works of bacteria, we'll put it in a pill and we'll, uh, it, some people call it a crapsule, mm -hmm. um, but it'll be a capsule of some sort that we can take orally and that will, a lot of the stigma will then melt away from this kind of thing where we can, what, what they call repopulate the, the gut. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of what we're looking at. One of the things that's very exciting to me is these new, new potential for oral uh, microbiota changes. And the other thing that's very exciting is phages. I think phages that's are going right. to be really big. And, and this is something that is not new to science, but it's kind of new to the Western world. A lot of that research was done uh, by the Russians in, 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 a, in Georgia, where they did not have the access to some of the antibiotics that we did. They took a different approach. And uh, phage therapy and phage research is kind of interesting. You can take a smear of the bacteria that you get that's causing problems of uh, pathogens. And back, uh, viruses can just land on there and form a little moat around uh, any viral particle that is actually uh, eating the bacteria of, of interest. So it's pretty straightforward stuff. You scoop that out, you uh, amplify it, and you can give it to somebody. The fascinating thing about phages is that they will grow to populate all, that you, all the pathogens that are in there. They will infect the pathogens, blow them up, and then continue to spread. Wow. They're very specific to, to species. And so they will not cause problems with other bacteria, just the one that they are designed to uh, infect. And so they can take out the bad guys with uh, high precision. Um, there are a lot of uh, problems still with it, but those are problems that I think that we can work out. And I look forward to the day when we can get phages as a, as a therapy. Mm, yeah, I don't know much about it, but I, I see it sort of trending. Um, one area just uh, quickly I just thought about was um, helmet therapy I find intriguing. Uh, I think right. there's some researchers here in Brisbane that had essentially cured celiac disease by administering, and I can't remember the, 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 the worm they administered. Um, my, thought, I, my interpretation is I think now they're trying to find out the metabolites created by these um, helmets that it seems to be modulating the immune system, maybe trying to commercialise you know, um, pharmaceuticals out of it. Um, you, what's your thoughts on helmet therapy and the, the future there? Yeah, I, you know, it's right up there with fecal transplants in terms of the ick factor. Um, <laughs> you know, exactly. it's like, oh, sure, let's have a bunch of worms growing in our guts. Uh, it's, it's, it's common and it's the way we evolutionarily came up was to have these worms in us on a regular basis. And they exert, they do have metabolites and those metabolites are designed specifically to downregulate the immune system. So the immune system doesn't kick them out. So they, to the extent that they can lower inflammation, they do seem to have a really good purpose and they have good utility. Um, like there's, but there's another one in terms of celiac, as I just read one a study where they used 10 specific bacteria and that also wow. uh, was able to cure celiac. And so what we're looking at probably is some sort of metabolite. We're looking at something that can fix this problem. And I suspect we're going to find out it's something that downregulates the immune system. Mm, mm. So those are, those are definitely, all of those things are, are hot topics right now. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and, and finally, your book was in, obviously in 2017, um, but the world moves rapidly in the microbial world. <laughs> Anything you, yes. you look back now and say, like, I wish I had a, did this or I'd change that? Or? Um, we are kind of shocked when we look back on it to find out that we didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's no egregious errors in the book, which is fascinating at this. Yeah, yeah. I, uh-huh. I would not have, I would not have given you any money on that one, <laughs> uh, but, but it turns out that's true. Now in terms of all the new stuff though, Oh wow. It's definitely time for, an, for version two out of this one um, because the new studies that have come out and those, those, the studies that are most important to me and that are more intriguing are the clinical studies with humans. That's really what, was not some, yeah. that some of that was there enough of that was there that we could say look this is a real thing uh but the studies are ongoing and in particular the stuff about uh, autism and stuff like that that really wasn't there at in time for the book uh there were some hints but not enough to really go on so yeah it's definitely we we would add version two but we're uh very pleased to see that at least what we did put in there is is correct so yeah, far yeah it sounds like the foundations were, were correct it's just reinforcing that now with the, the clinical data right scott it's been a pleasure talking to you such a great communicator i love your analogies and broad knowledge um so yeah before we sign off maybe yeah mention your book um any oh, yeah. social media website there's the the book um it's available at amazon um and it's now out on paperback so you can save a couple of bucks um and uh we have a website at psychobi uh the psychobiotic revolution.com psychobioticrevolution.com and you can keep up with the latest there i also have a twitter handle at at psychobiotic uh where where you can read some of the latest things i do a lot of research and i post the latest research on the gut brain axis there a lot Um, so it's a great place to keep in touch with the latest uh that's going on and i also have a column at uh, psychology today Uh, um yeah so and um you can find out about that usually the easiest way to find out about that is through the twitter uh, the Twitter feed. Oh, yeah. yeah. So beautiful. So we, we're, we're out there on the social media. Um, <laughs> take a look and, and it's, it's fascinating. You'll find out a lot more about what's going on because the latest stuff is it, the, the research comes out every day. There's at least five new articles that I have to be looking at. Um, and I'll tweet out about them. And uh, those researchers are my heroes. They are doing amazing, amazing work. And you're right, this in the time of coronavirus, a lot of people have switched out, but I'm glad that some people are able to keep motoring on in, in this field. Exactly, likewise. Well, yeah, thanks again, Scott. It was a, a real thrill to talk to you and pick your brain. And yeah, I appreciate your, your balance and um, practical understanding of, of, of all this. And uh, yeah, maybe we can touch base in, in the future and get some updates. I'd love to, Nathan. Thank you. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.